a repealing thought. I watched C-SPAN once again to celebrate the birth of our country. It was the first time I'd watched C-SPAN since the Clinton campaign. I watched just for a couple of synchronistic hours. They were showing programs they taped on June 28th and 29th. First, there was a program called Project for the Republican Future. On that program, the famous political consultant and pollster, Dr. Frank Luntz, told us that his polls showed that the people in the U.S. today believe the quality of life has gone down since the previous generations, and the majority believes that the next generation will have even a lower standard of living. He said that the polls showed that the average American believed that there was a moral decline in this country. He said, for the first time in American history, Americans are pessimistic about their future. I began to think about that. I decided the decline started in 1947. What happened in 1947? We were enjoying a steady rise in our standard of living unprecedented in history. We had just won World War II. I was eight years old and I was having a great time. What happened almost 50 years ago in 1947? In July 1947, there was headlines all over the world which said that the U.S. Air Force had discovered a crashed flying saucer near Roswell, New Mexico. The Army Air Corps arrested the sheep rancher, Mac Brazel, who found the wreckage of the crashed UFO scattered over several acres of his remote pasture lands. By the reports of eyewitnesses, the wreckage was made of some kind of metal with memory. It couldn't be bent, burned, or hammered. Brazel was locked in a room on the airbase in Roswell and interrogated for eight days. All his constitutional rights were violated. He was threatened with a loaded gun. The life of his wife and children were threatened. And finally, he was offered a handsome payment if he would sign a security oath. Brazel died with his lips sealed, but his family knew that something had him changed. He told them if another one of them things crashed, he wouldn't tell anybody. He always looked askance at the U.S. government thereafter, but he cashed their checks. There were a lot of UFO sightings that year. Whether others had experienced similar to Brazil is not known. There are a couple of congressional inquiries in the alleged Roswell crash underway at the present time. The Air Force said that when Brazil found was a weather balloon. Recently, it released newly declassified documents. They say what Brazil found was still a balloon, but a special high-tech one. Two months after Brazil found that balloon and was held in violation of its constitutional rights, Congress quietly passed the National Security Act with little or no debate. That act made it legal to imprison someone without just cause, such as the experienced by Brazil. The passage of the National Security Act was accomplished in two weeks. That's mighty fast for any act of Congress almost any time in history except an emergency of war. Whether or not the National Security Act had anything to do with the crash at Roswell, nobody knows. If you're looking for a motive for something that would motivate the mightiest nation on earth, the victors of World War II who lived under the wondrous Bill of Human Rights written by Thomas Paine, included as amendments to the U.S. Constitution. If you were looking for some motive that would make the leaders of the nation, at the time patriots, all sell out the Constitution, maybe what they found at Roswell was enough. But maybe not.
Could the motive to sell out be merely greed? There are those who believe that's all there is to it. And there are those who believe that there are older and larger loyalties than one's loyalty, one's constitution. Many believe that the corrupt cloud that is collating our nation's spirit sun comes from an ancient plot of some secret society like the Illuminati, the Bilderbergers, the Council on Foreign Relations, unnamed global oligarchies, the Seven Sisters, i.e. the seven major fossil fuel and natural resources controlling banks. Colonel Fletcher Prouty was near the top in 1947. He was the man who would be one of the first chiefs of special operations for the CIA. He was one of the first warriors in the Invisible War. Before the National Security Act, Prouty says, the climate was one of being afraid of what would happen if the Soviets got the bomb. History shows that was actually leaked to them. I put the questions above to Prouty. I asked him if the quick congressional passage of the National Security Act could have been prompted by what they discovered at Roswell. Prouty talked at length about the UFO question. He said in his work consulting on cryptocracy documents of that period, he'd been hired to examine the MJ-12 documents. They were forgeries, he said. But then he added, but that doesn't mean that there is not a story behind them. Prouty then told me about a couple of old buddies of his who were scientists who worked on the ultimate secret Manhattan Project, which developed the atomic bomb during World War II. He said they were both neighbors who apparently lived under the regular flight path of a UFO for a couple of months. At first, the old guys didn't believe their eyes, and they bought and thought that they were witnessing some new government secret flying machines. Naturally, being scientists, the third time these things show up and fly silently over their houses, they've all got their instruments out, Prouty said. He'd seen the videos they took of the craft, and he saw the magnometer readouts and a lot of evidence. These guys concluded, Prouty said, these things were not ours. The way they behaved defied our known laws of physics. Flashing back to the question of Roswell being the motive of rushing the National Security Act through Congress, Prouty said he didn't believe that's the way it happened. He said the National Security Act was already in the works for quite terrestrial reasons. It was obvious that someone had been planning it for a long while. I turned to Colonel that I found it hard to believe that just a fear of communism motivated the Cold War. What intelligent person could buy into that, I asked. Prouty assured me that the PSYOPs worked so well that the majority believed that communism was a real threat to our way of life. He said he had evidence before World War II ended that there was a secret plan being followed that would set up the conditions of the Cold War. Prouty said he had always believed that the National Security Act was a big mistake. I tried the idea out on Prouty that it must have been the military that sold out our constitution and set up the national security state. But Prouty assured me he had known the men who'd done it, and he'd known them well. They weren't military men, and the impression I got from him was they were sleazy, greedy, ruthless, Ivy League-educated civilians who wielded the mysterious power of some corporate dynasty. Whatever the motive for the reason for the national security state, it was the beginning of the end of our free society. 
Prouty reminded me that President Harry Truman mentioned it as the only decision he would like to unmake. After he left office, Truman said, quote, For some time I have been disturbed by the way CIA has been diverted from its original assignment. It has become an operational and at times policy-making arm of our government. I never had any thought that when I set up the CIA, it would be injected into peacetime cloak-and-dagger operations. Some of the complications and embarrassment that I think we have experienced are in part attributed to the fact that this quiet intelligence arm of the president has been so removed from its intended role that it's being interpreted as a symbol of sinister and mysterious foreign intrigue and a subject for Cold War enemy propaganda. But CIA is only a small part of the national security state. President Truman did not have the perspective to perceive the terminal cancer of the cryptocracy to which he surrendered our freedom. He could not have realized the carcinogenic effect of institutionalized secrecy as it spread into the body politic of what was once the most freedom-loving, prosperous, and creative nation ever to manifest on the face of the planet Earth. Flashback to the C-SPAN program I watched. Dr. Luntz talked a lot about Ross Perot and how effective he'd been in the presidential campaign, even though he lost. He said that Perot's campaign should serve as an example to the Republicans in the next election. He said that if he was asked what the Republicans had to do to win the next 1996 election, he'd say, tell the party to let the people speak. I thought about the National Security Act again. No political party will be able to let the people speak as long as the National Security Act is in effect. In the national security state, the citizens are treated as a bunch of children attending a grown-up party. We're allowed to be sane out, but not heard. And when we ask the politician to tell us something relevant, they either tell us they don't have the need to know or we don't have the need to know. It's like telling a child, you're not old enough to know this right now. Come back in 40 years and we'll tell you. That's one of the effects of the National Security Act. The Bill of Rights says freedom of speech is one of our inalienable rights. But as an ordinary citizen living in the national security state, you don't know anything truly relevant to talk about. If you're being kept in the informational dark, you can't talk about the future. Keeping you secretly in the dark about vital information impairs your thinking. And if your thinking is impaired, your speaking is impaired. That means your freedom of speech is impaired. Soon the state will fade and the corporation will replace it. The shadows of the future are cast from the past. Microsoft is a model of the new planetary global state. It's built on lies. Call it marketing. You take a shabby idea because you're at the right place at the right time and you'll sell it for a million to IBM. Then come and purchase the rights to it from your in-the-dark neighbor. There are far better systems, but never mind. The one you've chosen will be improved. You're building a language so that you can charge for it. Every A, and, but, or, if, etc. will be billed to your account. Soon you'll take your place beside the electric company, the gas company, the water company, and the air company to pay royalties for the necessities of life which once were free. Remember Thomas Jefferson's remark at the beginning of this book. 
quote, there is no safe depository of the ultimate powers of society but the people themselves. And if we think them not enlightened enough to exercise their control with a wholesome discretion, the remedy is not to take it from them, but to inform their discretion by education. The practices of the national security state preclude that. The control has been taken from us. The democratic process of government today must be for a show, a feeble attempt to keep the public order. That's when a simple thought began to form in my mind. My parents' generation wanted to drink without sneaking around, so they repealed the Volstead Act, which prohibited the consumption of alcohol. It ought to be that easy. This generation ought to be wise enough to repeal the National Security Act, which prohibits freedom of information, therefore freedom of thought, and therefore freedom of speech. Since the Founding Fathers never anticipated the intervention of technologies that would intrude themselves into a person's private thoughts, even take over and drive his dreams, should we consider adding another amendment to the Constitution which guarantees freedom of thought? One would like to believe that, once the legal debate concluded, and all the testimony about the role of language, speech, and thought processes had been established, the Supreme Court would agree that the right of free speech was based upon the presumption of free thought. But there are needs to be debated about it now, so that the invisible and uninvited deliberate influences upon the human mind will be mandated illegal by the courts. But you have to wonder if that's enough. Do any of our institutions have any value in this world of out-of-sight, out-of-mind, undocumented government by cryptocracy? Things are different now than they were in the 1770s when this country was founded. Today, mind control does exist. It is the linchpin which keeps all the secrets. It is the lock on the minds of the slaves that bury the secrets. But you don't have the need to know that. Or do you? Since you are interested enough to read this book to the end, you are not one of the sheeple who will wor not work to create a world that works. You are one of the people who count. Again, flashback to the panel of the same C-SPAN program. There was Lamar Alexander, a Bush administration education secretary. He told the story about the days when he walked across the state of Tennessee for six months, living with the people of the state, running for governor. He said the most important thing he learned on the walk was the people tuned out Washington. They listened to the local news. They read the local papers. And part of that, I thought, was because people know what's going on. If it's not conscious yet, they know it intuitively. Few people trust the national security state, which has its head offices in Washington. That's the reason nobody trusts Washington. It's not America. It's the national security state, an unauthorized institution of lies. The manager of a small Midwestern town I know told me about the time federal agents came to the city's office and told him what he had to make a decision about that clearly should have been a local decision and which legally was protected from an interference by the body of laws called states' rights. What states' rights, he asked. I either had to do what they told me or my wife and kids would be at risk. They made it very plain. 
I did what they told me to do because I was afraid. It had happened years before, in the 70s, but he still resented it. While I was thinking about all this, scribbling the notes, the C-SPAN program was continuing and my attention was captured by Jack Fund, a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, who was sitting next to Dr. Luntz and he was saying, quote, the Republicans talk good, but their biggest problem, and the problem of the Democrats too, is they talk good, but they don't deliver. Talk's not much worth to the American people. There's been way too much talk. End quote. What the politicians talk about is largely irrelevant. They're not talking about any of the secrets. That's what we should be talking about. What's wrong with our country is a conspiracy to control a future we don't even know about. Everything I was watching on C-SPAN was irrelevant and could be explained by what we don't know. The politicians ought to be asking questions like, what is it that's classified 40 or 50 years? Who is classifying it? What is the system of accountability that will correct mistakes and punish wrongdoers? How can we find out the secrets that are being used to manipulate and control us? Who can we trust? On February 2nd, 1994, the New York Times carried this editorial. Washington's secret war over secrecy had taken a predictable turn. A year ago, President Clinton asked an interagency working group to establish a less secretive system for classifying documents. The working group labored and came up with a draft executive order last November, which, naturally, was kept secret. Fortunately, a copy was leaked to the Federation of American Scientists, and lo, the Federation found that while suggesting a few modest reforms, the draft order would actually close the shutters tighter. The draft order proposes, with few exceptions, a maximum classification lifetime of 40 years. As the Federation's analysts point out, Richard Nixon set a maximum of 30 years for most classified documents, and Jimmy Carter fixed limit at 20 years. This extended period outweighs the hypothetical benefit of a balancing test that would allow declassifiers to weigh the public interest against national security concerns. The acting archivist of the United States, Trudy Peterson, made the necessary point in a recent letter to Vice President Al Gore. In our experience, there is virtually no information over 30 years old that requires continued classification. Most documents of this age are so irrelevant to current security concerns that continued withholding seems inappropriate, if not laughable. Ms. Peterson is custodian of 325 million classified documents, including files dating back to World War I. The secrecy establishment opposes and blocks declassification and favors an arduous reviewing process that would take decades. Otherwise, it is said, generally essentially most material might fall into the wrong hands. Granted, that is a risk, but how much greater the danger to democracy is excessive secrecy that denies Americans information essential to accountability. A more direct approach to weeding out this secret garden is advocated by Representative Dan Glickman, chairman of the White House Intelligence Committee. Most documents are classified by executive order without defined standards on who decides what to keep secret. Glickman would open the whole process to debate in public hearings and is drafting a bill that would establish clear rules and fix a 10-year-old 
to a six-year-old limit, wherever feasible, on classified security matters. Those House hearings might also illuminate another murky front in the administration's avowed war on secrecy. In 1993, for the third consecutive year, the Senate adopted a resolution urging disclosure of the now secret budget of the Central Intelligence Agency. Yet Clinton, only a few weeks ago, refused again to divulge the aggregate intelligence budget. With the Cold War over, this secrecy is hard to justify. The case for sunlight was expressed long ago by James Madison. Quote, a popular government without proper information or the means of acquiring it is but a prologue to a farce or tragedy, or perhaps both. Nice to hear that such a prestigious paper printed the above. It ought to start a campaign and print pages of educational material about the National Security Act. Truly educate the American public about the real reasons for keeping the secrets as long as possible. Criminal activities. Alas, the New York Times has become obsolete without even becoming aware that means it has become an art form, with all the shamanic duties thereof. The internet is a full of talk of this kind. There is hope in the places where people know that newspapers are obsolete. That's where you find the national security arc leaking like a sieve. The internet is a citizen's intelligence network. When information travels at the speed of light, there's ultimately no secrecy. Whenever something becomes obsolescent, it gets a lot of attention. The human form has obsolesced itself by extending its senses into electronic realms, into everywhere at once, at the speed of light. So there's a sudden consciousness of the body as an art form, and we see a lot of tattooing and piercing and bright blue hair and nudity and plastic surgery. Secrecy has been made obsolete by the technology that is manifesting as the information age. That's why there was an attempt by the NSA to push the clipper chip on us. And that's why there's so much attention on keeping the secrets. That's because the cryptocracy is obsolete and therefore an art form. The real artists of secrecy, like Woodfield Diffie, are giving the secrecy to everyone. Diffie is the guy who invented the public code program, which allows privacy to companies and individuals over the internet. The NSA tried to stop him, but couldn't. The information age, you want to think of it as a highway, will probably follow the evolution of CB radio. Out of anarchic chaos, it will develop its own harmonic perfection. The people will develop their own regulating practices. Order will prevail by the simple force of peer pressure or the group feeling. Technologies produce environments. They act like the climate in a room. When it's just right, nobody notices. But when it's too hot or cold, you give it your attention. You go over to the thermostat and regulate the temperature until it's invisible again. The national security state has become visible. It needs to be regulated until it's invisible again. That's hard to do in the information age. It plays counterpoint to the information age. That's why it will go, but not without a fight. The cryptocrats have their jobs to think of. They put so much energy into setting up the national security state. The Cold War was just an excuse to get the national security state going. 
It was just like terrorism on airplanes was just an excuse to control public air travel. Just like gang shootings were just an excuse to disarm the citizenry. Just like another unwinnable war on drugs was just an excuse for both illegal searches and seizures, more prisons and SWAT teams, and the high price and perverse interests and availability of drugs. Mostly uppers of the kind the Nazi Blitzkrieg ran on. The Nazis went the way of the radio, the new technology that created Hitler's environment. It became an art form. The secrets are coming out. Being obsolesced for a cryptocrat means he feels a great need to confess his secret sins against humanity in order to regain his own. While we may have been a nation of lab rats preyed upon by the cryptocracy, we are no longer. The way I add it up, through one secret program or another, half of the people in this country, maybe more than 150 million people, have been the targets of our own government's clandestine operations. That's no longer a secret. Nothing in this book is secret any longer. The cryptocracy will release the official photocopies that prove what I've said here is generally correct. But there were carefully forged documents within the stacks meant to mislead on certain crucial points. To mislead wherever it can. If we repeal the National Security Act, a few multimillionaires may lose a lot of money but they'll feel a lot better about themselves in the age of ecological awareness. The robber baron view of free enterprise is obsolete, but will only come out in the open after the last business's secret is revealed. Then, in a win-win world, there will be a more rich people than ever before. Money is information, after all. So what we have average people got to lose by repealing the National Security Act? Probably we've got a lot to gain, our freedom of thought foremost. My mother, born in 1910, used to tell me when I was overly curious little kid asking about adult things, what you don't know won't hurt you. That was probably part of the mindset that gave us the Great Depression and a couple of world wars. Now, as an adult, I know that what my mother told me was not true. People have always been the victims of their own ignorance, individually, culturally. What will happen when we repeal the National Security Act? Worst case scenario, after the votes have been counted and the repeal is announced, the voters who worked hardest for the repeal will rush into the streets to celebrate. They will hear tanks rumbling down the streets, helicopters flying at night, the communication systems will be jammed by high-tech military technology. What happened in Baghdad will happen here. There will be blackouts. The radio and television, when it comes back, will be run by the military dictatorship, which will announce that, due to some plausible argument designed to persuade us that this is for our own good, a state of national emergency has been declared. How many of us will laugh at that? The concentration camps have already been built to house those who resist the orders of the mind-controlled coops. Back in the 1300s, a Sufi scholar named Ibn Khaldun wrote a book called Mokadamin, Introduction to the History of the World. Arnold Toynbee called Khaldun the greatest historian who ever lived. He kept things simple and summed up the nuts and bolts of Western societies in a single work. Khaldun said all Western civilizations are motivated by dynasties who consume and display wealth. He said the majority of the people are the Bedouins, people who live in the desert, 
who know how to deal more with less. And they're the only source of true wealth. They are taxed by the dynasty, which must display the wealth to motivate individuals and must pay the military or police to guard the wealth from those who would let their greed overcome them. This all seems to work no longer than three generations or 75 years. Then the Bedouins notice that they have been overtaxed because the dynasty lives in fear of the military, which has had to raise money every year in order to keep it at bay. The dynasty has become so preoccupied with its fear of the military that it's lost sight of the needs of the Bedouins. That's when the collapse begins. Khaldun talks at length about the group feeling, which is the invisible glue, the zeitgeist of the Bedouins, a mystical force far more powerful than any military has ever possessed. In Khaldun's time, the military had only one primitive knowledge of mind control. When the time has come, the dynasty collapses on one of three ways. Number one, it collapses from within and the power goes back to the local dynasties. Number two, the military overthrows the dynasties by force, but the military rulership will collapse too, because if an army is a good army, its habits are Spartan, and it knows nothing of consuming wealth and displaying luxury, a requirement, Khaldun says, of a healthy economy. Number three, the best thing that can happen is that a leader emerges from the Bedouins who expresses the group feeling, and through the directed force of group feeling, the dynasty is overthrown. The leader sets up a new dynasty, and the whole cycle begins again. During the first generation of the new dynasty, however, things are at their best. In the information age, I would think, there need be no single individual who expresses the group feeling. The consensus evolves through constant feedback. The leader is information. The machine, the system, is information. And the wealth that is produced is information. The free flow of information, particles at the speed of light, can be contained only so long as the container is not full. When the container is full, like the crystal in a laser, the information becomes organized, coherent, and powerfully bursts from the weakest point of the container, which hopefully is the deliberately placed weak point, and the laser is aimed at the problem which the first burst solves. Like Khaldun, I am an optimist. We both believe in the inherent goodness of the human spirit. I've not been in many dangers, a big California earthquake and the blackout in New York City in 1965. Both times I witnessed a great demonstration of the best in humanity. It's just as Jeff Bridges said in Starman when playing an alien intelligence hiding in a human body, he summarized one of the miracles of the human beauty. When things are at their worst, you're at your best. It's not the people with courage who are sneaking around within the crotocracy. It's not all the filing clerks and functionaries that make up the CIA, NSA, NRO, NPO, and the rest. The cryptocracy and our military cannot all be entirely hypno-programmed. The Delta Force team, yeah. The SEAL teams, yeah. A few other small crack cadres, but not the majority of the U.S. military. Not at all. Not yet. So the day after the repeal won, I don't think there'll be regular army in the streets. After the creation of the right series of worst-case pseudo-events, some divide and conquer strategy in the media, there could be foreign troops in the streets, a United Nation 
peacekeeping force. It's up to us to read the books on the National Security Act, learn the lingo, then armed with the facts start calling for the repeal of it. At this time, it would appear to be unthinkable. The national security state would appear to be given something taken for granted, like the air we breathe. But try telling people when you're working to repeal it and watch them join you. I tried this in Los Angeles not long ago. I was speaking about the topic of this book, and I concluded with something on the order of this chapter, which I had left roughed out. The following speaker was retired U.S. Air Force Technological Intelligence Colonel Thomas Bearden, who was to speak as a physicist on the healthful uses of some of the new technology he has become expert in. Bearden walked up to the podium as I was trying to ask many questions to meet me in the hall outside. I introduced myself to Bearden, telling him I'd enjoyed trying to understand his book, The Excalibur Briefing. He smiled and thanked me for the compliment. Then I looked him straight in the eye and said, Tom, you know you're going to repeal the National Security Act, right? He took a step backward as if I'd poked him with a comet in the solar plexus. But, but the military, there must be military secrets, he stammered. Of course there does. The military has never had any trouble with that. There's a chain of command. There's honor. There's accountability. The military can have their legitimate secrets, I told him. Well then, he asked, extending his hand, I'm with you. You'll be surprised at how many allies you'll find in abolishing the National Security Act. Senator John Warner, someone told me, was talking about abolishing the CIA in late July or August of 1994. I thought that was a sign. The time had come to open Pandora's box. Even a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee was talking about doing away with CIA. But when I looked up Warner, said, I found he was only talking about cutting the budget and finding something for the multi-billion dollar agency to do. Maybe he had thought about abolishing CIA. But that's as far as the man in his political position could go. And maybe even had some thoughts about abolishing the National Security Act. He's a human being, and he's probably privy to some of the ugly secrets hidden behind the National Security Curtain. This is the information age, and that politicians who discover what that means, ultimately, there will be no secrecy. Will find themselves on a winning side aligned with the group feeling which will repeal the National Security Act. Again, flashing back to the 4th of July, following the program on the Republicans' future of C-SPAN, was a program taped at the National Press Club called Restoring Public Trust. I found it just fascinating as the previous program. It was another program in which the panelists were trapped, talking in circles in front of the National Security Curtain. Almost everything the panelists said was completely irrelevant. Richard Leone, president of the 20th Century Fund, lamented the fact that people didn't even trust privacy anymore. He said they didn't even think anything of business rights or privacy or attorney-client privileges or doctor-patient privileges or the pre-secrecy of the confessional. I could not believe that Richard, at the pinnacle of the power of the 20th Century Fund, had overlooked this as an obvious fact of living in an involuntary and corrupt cryptocracy. This panel spent the next hour responding to a paper Tom Rosenstiel, media correspondent of the LA Times, had written. Rosenstiel and his other panelists, Paul Pagella, Susan Page of Newsday, all agreed, as Professor Rosen of NYU had put it, it's not up to the journalists to save democracy. 
all that they can even hope to do is save journalism. Nobody mentioned the National Security Act. I wondered if they just accepted it as an irreversible fact, or if they were even aware of its effect on information at all. I mean, is the press part of the corruptsopsy too? Do journalists now have security clearances? I was hoping I'd hear a quote from Jefferson on the importance of the press to the functioning of the democratic process. We should make sure our kids are taught this quote of Jefferson's at least. The remedy is not to take it from them, classify it, but to inform the discretion by good journalism, education. On C-SPAN, the supposedly the best journalist jawed on about press coverage about the White House without seeming to be aware that all there is is to cover already been covered with top secret stamps. What the press should be writing about are all the secrets behind the national security curtain. Jay Rosen, the NYU journalism professor, wore a blue work shirt and no tie. He did wear a jacket though, as a token of his tenure. He complained about the visible loss of press authority, saying that journalists were increasingly unable to persuade their audience that they make any difference in question of politics. Did it even occur to Rosen that this is true because of the effects of living in front of the national security curtain? Rosen came as close to bringing up the real problem as anybody that day. As clear as he got to say, the press has no long-run strategy for addressing its loss of authority which I say it can do easily by realizing the problem comes from the National Security Act and the cryptocracy. How about a freedom of speech club in which every journalist and editor is given a lie detector test asking if she's now or ever been an asset of the cryptocracy? Paul Begela, media advisor to President Clinton said, people today view their leaders as more cynical than they ever have, not skeptical, cynical. President Clinton probably wouldn't have had all the problems he had if the National Security Act had ceased to exist by the time he was elected governor. But had it never existed, he probably never would have gone to Oxford, nor would he have been elected president of the United States. You heard him trying to reform the healthcare system, but you didn't hear him ever speaking of the tyranny which lurks behind the National Security Curtain or revealing any details of one-third of the national budget which funds the black operations of the cryptocracy. Bigala said he'd like to see more basic mainstream facts from journalists, rather than so much analysis and speculation about things. But none of the journalists said, that's all the cryptocracy's left us, the irrelevant stuff, the obsolete, just yesterday's news. Journalism is a rewarding craft. A journalist is someone who is a generalist in a world of specialists. Journalists need know nothing at all except how to find out anything. It's a wonderful pursuit for the inexhaustibly curious. A journalist is a detective looking for information and her boss is the public, everyone. The truth shall make you free. What I'm saying here isn't over the head of the silent majority. In fact, I believe I'm expressing, if not the manifesting group feeling, at least the opinion of the 5% that counts, the 5% who are communicating, the 5% which is all it takes to succeed, who will make the positive changes necessary, the 5% who together will overcome the inertia of the national security state. Then there are those who would ridicule conspiracy theorists, calling them paranoid. The word paranoia can mean heightened awareness, or it can mean irrational fear. 
the majority opinion on the internet is aware and concerned. The internet knows what's going on. Without paranoia, the people might perish. We have entered the information age. We are extending our senses by electronic technology beyond the speed of light. The speed of light approaches the speed of thought. There is a coming of great simultaneity. At everywhere at once-ness, a form of global consciousness experienced on a personal level. At the same time, there are forces of inertia that need to be overcome. Inertia describes the tendency of a body at rest to stay at rest, while a body in motion has a tendency to stay in motion. So, it's simply a law of physics. The national security body, which is stalled on the freeway, will be moved out of the way. We're getting crystal clear feedback from the group feeling. The river of electrons on the internet is telling us, invisible weapons technology will continue to develop, and minds will be controlled at a distance, and dreams will be driven in mass. But the river is telling us that by the very nature of the information age, of which most of our unaware, we will see controllers become the controlled, and the controlled become the controller. With one foot still in the old linear plumbing diagram modality of the industrial age where things move in patterns of start, stop, and change, there has come an epic time of change. And it would help if this is done consciously. It is happening unconsciously already, and for some, the understanding of what is happening will never overcome the consciousness. For many, there will be no debriefing, and they will be simply moved to another plateau without leaving a trail of history without learning how to do it better if something similar comes up in the future. So, from the platform of my obsolete self, I say aloud, repeal the National Security Act. Then I hear the echo from the river. It's already been repealed. There are no secrets. There can be no secrets in the information age. Everyone knows everything all at once. You ask, what will happen to the cryptocrats? They will be recognized as the artists that they are. Bob Dobbs explains. The best qualified CIA covert operations planning executives are to be found among paperback novelists and TV dramatists. The credulous, neurotic projects reality onto the banal stage and TV screen productions because of this strong desire to believe that the combination of painted backgrounds, paper mache, costume, and montage has such reality. There is no way in which to conceal repeated covert operations unless the public wishes to be credulous. Give the public a fantasy of the sort to which is susceptible, and no amount of mere fact will easily dissuade the majority of such persons from believing in whatever illusion the covert operation is designed to create. The application of the calculated deception of the successful hack novelist and dramatist to the so-called documentary film and non-fiction expose is the connecting link between outright pornography writing and the techniques for designing a CIA-type covert operation scenario. If, by chance, a covert operation is blown, CIA obviously remedy is to prompt one of its subsidiaries or sister agencies to whip up a fresh expose of the CIA, give the credulous public a believable expose scenario, and the expose provides a deeper cover than the original plot itself. When I last saw Bob between meetings of a Finnegan's Wake study group, he was making an in-depth study of Norman Mailer's novel, Harlot's Ghost, and trying to explain how he's actually the central character in the book. Shortly after I visited Bob, I visited Fletcher Prouty. 
He had read Harlot's Ghost, and he made a list of character names beside which he wrote the names of real people he thought they might be. He sent the list to Mailer, who wrote back telling him he'd gotten all of them right, except one. There may be more in Bob's brief, dense to common, than at first one surmises. There have been a lot of writers involved as contributors to the cryptocracy, from L. Ron Hubbard back in the 40s to Jerry Purnell in the 70s. Purnell is at best-selling SF writer and columnist who writes a consumer computer technology. In this instance, he was the systems operator of a forum on Genie. The topic of the forum discussion Pornell moderated was the Clinton administration. Chuck Zepps posted an article about Clinton's alleged involvement in CIA drug smuggling through Mena, Arkansas, the real story behind the White Watergate scandal. He then posted an article published in a LaRouche periodical entitled Natural Born Killers. Executive Intelligence Review releases study linking British psychiatry to assassination. The article argued that assassins were being programmed, not by the good old U.S., but by the British. Pornell reacted strongly against Zepps, calling him an agent provocateur and stating that he worked for the other side. I thought his reaction was totally out of proportion, Zepp said, and after reading the assassination stuff from LaRouche, I think Pornell, a trained psychologist, may be more concerned with his government's psychological work coming to light than any communist allegations. Flame is a cyber jargon for argument in the restrictive format of the net, and it is what Pornell and Zepps had. Zepps got his licks, apparently, pushing some invisible buttons of Pornell's. And Purnell's best retort was a cliché which former cryptocrats on the net often quote from Napoleon Bonaparte, who ought to know, never ascribe to malice what can be explained by simple incompetence. The flame dampened when Purnell asked the net overseer to throw Zepps off and banish him from, from America online. But maybe Purnell, by quoting Napoleon, was making an important point. Maybe he was offering us a strong argument for the repeal of the National Security Act. Under this ad, it usually takes 20 years or more to discover incompetence. The National Security Act protects incompetence, as well as criminals and those who have been just made bad decisions. Could Watergate, Iran-Contra, the assassinations, and so forth, could they all have been just to institutionalized incompetence of the cryptocracy? Okay, let's suppose all this mess has been made by honest mistakes. Then let's declare a period of amnesty for all the criminal incompetence of the cryptocracy. A full pardon will be issued for every cryptocrat who turns in his secrets and promises never to do it again. Flashback with me again to one of the 4th of July on C-SPAN. The journalists and politicians and pollsters were all really talking about the problems created by the national security state. Yet they never spoke the phrase. It was like they were players in a novel nobody was reading. Perhaps they didn't know the cause of the problems they were discussing. They were acting like they lived in a room which was the perfect temperature. They didn't notice the temperature. The national security curtain has made half of reality invisible. Bill Clinton's Secretary of Energy, Hazel O'Leary, made big waves by telling the truth. She ordered the Department of Energy to declassify 32 million pages of secret files. That's a pile of pile of papers three miles high. I'll leave the applause for Leary. But now, ma'am, there must be another 32 million pages of secrets still left. Let's see those, too. 
How much uranium and plutonium has been really scattered around the planet? How many people have died from radiation effects? What do our secret intelligence reports say on the effects of the Soviet bunkle at Chernobyl? How many of the so-called monarch survivors were used in radiation experiments? And what's this harp tower over Alaska really all about? Miss O'Leary said, I've looked into the eyes and faces of people doing battle with their government. But I've got to tell you, Miss O'Leary, God bless her, she declassified the biggest pile of secret documents in U.S. history, but she got a lot more eyes and faces to look into before it's over. Using her terms, the battle hasn't even started. She's seen only the radiation of guinea pigs. I've survived and interviewed disproportionately too many survivors of the so-called Project Monarch who have to have their thyroids removed. But O'Leary isn't the secretary who's going to have to look into the facts of the army of zombies who've been mind-controlled by a half-dozen agencies of the cryptocracy. The Department of Energy barely even qualifies as an agency of the cryptocracy. Maybe O'Leary should be appointed to directorship of CIA. O'Leary announced that cleaning up the radiation dumps around this country is going to cost $300 million. I wonder what the doctors are going to charge to restore peace of mind to the millions of mind control survivors that are just now discovering they need psychological help. And what about all those they've killed themselves due to mind control? What about all those that have killed others because of mind control? And what about all those who were killed because they began to remember the dirty secrets that they were programmed to forget? Those whose amnesia finally ran out. There are six new lawsuits over radiation experimentation in Kellersness, August 1994. That's six more out of 165,000 workers in a 1.5 billion industry. I know of twice that many mind control suits shaped up at the same time. One thing the mind control suits and the suits against DOE or most other agencies have in common, sometimes DOE is the object of mind control suits as well. All but a few are thrown out of court when the National Security Act is invoked. See, the National Security Act says that in the interest of national security, you're not entitled to a fair trial. All of your civil rights can be suspended in the interest of national security. And what is national security? Nobody knows. There's no case law on it. Is anything the cryptic acts say is? For some reason, the judges go along with this? Why? Probably because they're part of their cryptocracy, or they're afraid that the pictures of themselves molesting the innocent child will be made public and they'll be the end of their careers. They didn't know that it was the cryptocrats who provided the child, and the child is a DID, multiple personality, who's specially, specially trained to perform some perverted sexual act that deserves the judge's own pedophilic or bestial tastes. But I don't want to pick on the judges. How about the senators, congressmen, presidents, cabinet members, prominent entertainers, the rich and the famous? This is what we're hearing over and over from the survivors of Project Monarch, which have been also called Project 100,000. Have you seen anything about that in your local newspapers? And journalists are doing a poor job covering the war on drugs. I asked one former spook how the war on drugs was going, and he said, what war on drugs? It's the CIA's war against their competition in the drug business. And that conversation took place almost 10 years before the film. Traffic won four of five Academy Awards. So here we go again. Without the National Security Act, we wouldn't have a drug problem in this country. As the song goes, 
what the government denies free enterprise supplies. Journalists don't report on the lag in technology which does not exist if the National Security Act were repealed and all the secrets revealed. They usually don't report on how cold fusion or zero-port energy will make fossil fuels obsolete and allow the atmosphere to regain its natural purity. They usually don't report on the wonderful powers of the human mind that have been discovered in the mind control research which has spent 50 years discovered and hidden behind the national security curtain. Happily, the cryptocracy cannot sustain its secrecy because, to quote McLuhan, when information travels at the speed of light, there is no secrecy. And there's no proprietary right either because information is everywhere at once. Clearly now, we're seeing the effects of the information age. There are leaks in the national security dike. More and more you can find someone telling the naked truth somewhere. Usually in its cybernetic seminus, in Mondo 2000, the group Feeling was expressed by its inside in Xander Korzynski's. Have you figured it out yet? Okay, let me spell it out for you, you pathetic autists. They know exactly which ELF frequencies, waveforms, and code sequences, brave frequency region, pulse code modulation, superimposed widely on power lines, radio, TV, and microwave transmissions to use and create any emotion or pathology they please. You don't. And you probably don't own a real ELF detector. You poor bleeding sheep don't even know that you're already using ELF generators in malls, restaurants, and bars to maximize output and revenues. Even magnetizing fans in their conditioners and refrigerators to create pulsed EFA weapons to zap you. It will all be duly captured by Hillary's smart card, which will store your brainwaves and monitor all transactions everywhere you go, so the SALT police can download it at any time via the data superhighway and issue the ultimate access denied. When Albert Einstein was warning the superpowers about nuclear folly, and after the first explosion of the hydrogen bomb, which did not blow up the planet as some feared it might, but merely proved his theories correct, he said that mankind had come to a crossroads at which the human spirit must overcome technology. How long will be the stuck at Einstein's intersection? In the 50s, it was the nuclear threat, the big and the visible, the loud and the devastating, the hot flash of light and the mushroom cloud. Now it's the insidious, sneaky, non-lethal weapons technology, ELF, VLF, SHF, microwaves and other waves and rays of invisible war against all humanity. When Hazel O'Leary explained her reasons for releasing three-mile-high stacks of secret Department of Energy, formerly Atomic Energy Commission documents, she said the place needed shaping up. It had to be removed from the shroud of Cold War secrecy. And so does the National Institute of Mental Health, the Veterans Administration, and all other public service agencies of government. And so does the whole society. We can all at once repeal the National Security Act and all the secret agencies under which violate our constitutional rights. Why tell the truth one declassified document at a time, or 30 million declassified documents at a time? Why not do it all at once by abolishing the National Security Act? The National Security Act has taken the truth away. We are, in fact, living in a state of martial law, a state of national emergency. They call it national security. Where's the security in it? Without freedom, without civil rights, what kind of security can people have? And if the people aren't the nation, then we're going to have to fix that starting right now.
Maybe we don't even need nations anymore. But if we don't, we need a voluntary commitment to whatever is better. The group feeling will create the change. It's being expressed. The future will probably not be anything like we predict. Just check out one of the predictions about biological process control from the 13-volume New World Vistas Air and Space Power for the 21st Century. Here are some lines from a poem I saw by Diane De Prima. It's a poem entitled Rant. The only war that matters is the war against the imagination. The only war that matters is the war against the imagination. The only war that matters is the war against the imagination. All other wars are subsumed in it. There is no way out of the spiritual battle. 